Please take your Bibles and join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. In a moment, we'll begin reading in verse 3 and read the entire chapter. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and following. You'll note that uh, I've entitled this message, Something Old, Something New. I do not have anything borrowed, but I am wearing a blue shirt. So, three out of four. I am uh, eager to think with you today about what it means to turn the calendar, turn over the calendar, a new year. Uh, There is a need for some adjustments, dare we say, in most every life. And this seems to be the natural cultural moment when those adjustments are at least emphasized. It is clear that uh, there are more advertisements for weight loss programs in January than there are any other time of the year. There are more advertisements for fitness equipment in January than any other time of the year. It seems that there are many things that have gone a little bit sloppy in our lives, and there is an opportunity here at the first of the year to do better. I want to discourage, however, the notion that somehow you can manually, physically, by strength of your sheer will, turn over a new leaf and actually change yourself. You may change your waistline. You may change the size of your muscles, but you will not change yourself. So my ambition, I think the Bible's ambition, God's hope for His people, is less about us changing our physical condition and more about changing our spiritual condition. And so it's there that I want to consider with you something old, something new. My thesis goes something like this, that today, dare I say every day, we gather together, We should look for that which is foundational, the rock that does not move, something old, while we at the same time are open to considering something new. Maybe there is a need, probably there is a need to change a few things, to stop or to start or to use Paul's language in Colossians to put off and to put on probably a need for that so we need something old and we need something new let's read this paragraph or this entire chapter first peter chapter 1 verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the res- resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, what but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Admittedly, that is a very long passage of Scripture. My hope today is that you will see again and again a similar theme running throughout this section. He's doing two things again and again. He says it, and then he says it a different way, and then he says it yet a third way. He is reminding us that we are born again, and that we are born again based on the kind and generous work of God, that we are born again according to His mercy. He repeats that theme throughout. Notice again in chapter 1, verse 3, 
he builds upon this old, old story. He wants us never to forget that whatever is future for us, what really matters fundamentally is that we are joined to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how he phrases it, verse 3, you are born again according to his great mercy. Let's, let's establish this in our own hearts here the first Sunday of January. Here every Sunday, let us establish it again and again. Let us be reminded of this because the flesh argues with that point again and again. The flesh will have no pleasure in acceding to that truth that you're born again by the work of God, by the mercy of God. The flesh wants to suggest that you're born again because you considered your options, because you have a great brain, or because you are a wise person, or because you are just full of common sense, and that it just made sense. The reality is, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would send His only begotten Son to be killed. You wouldn't do that. Don't make out like that's normal behavior. And yet, that is exactly what happened. It doesn't make sense that God would send His only begotten Son and that that Son would be born of a virgin. That doesn't make sense. Don't make out like it does. It doesn't make sense that God would send His only begotten Son and that He'd be raised in the home of a blue-collar worker. Kings are not raised in the homes of normal people. They are raised in the homes of royalty. That doesn't make sense. And don't make out like it does. It doesn't make sense that God would allow His Son to be brutalized by people who have no regard for His Son. It doesn't make sense that God would somehow submit His Son to that. Neither does it make sense that His Son would knowingly submit to the Father's expectation of that. Don't make out like that's normal, because it's not. And then, of course, he was raised from the dead. Don't make out like you know what that's like, because you don't. In other words, this whole thing of salvation is a miracle. The plan is a miracle. The power is a miracle. The love of God for sinners is a miracle. The obedience of Christ to this plan that none of us would ever submit to is a miracle. Don't make out like it's normal. If you're here today and you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, we beg of you, look to this one. The Son of God stooped to this earth. He took upon himself the form of a man. He allowed himself to die to be murdered, killed, crucified. 
by people who have no regard for God. Just so that by his sacrifice, your sins would be covered. Your sins would be forgiven. Your sins would be absolved. Think of that. Think of that. Don't leave here today without contending with that. And don't leave here having contended with that, suggesting that somehow you can earn that or deserve that. You can't. I'm reminded whenever the Bible talks about mercy, as it does right here in verse 3, that the old, old story is a story of the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Isn't it good news this morning? Here we are on the first Sunday of the new year, looking back on last year and thinking about some of the disappointments, some of the failures, some of the outright rebellion in our lives. We coulda, shoulda, oughta, mighta have done better, but we didn't. And we have to own that. But do we have to wear that? Absolutely not. According to God, he is ready to forgive. That we stand today under the blood of Christ. We stand covered by the blood of Christ and that the mercy of God is sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is ready, willing. He is able and he is, he is eager for us to humble ourselves, to seek reconciliation and to be restored. Praise God, his mercy and the reservoir of his mercy has not in any way been diminished. God continues to reach out his hand to you, to me, and to say, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you whose lives are racked by sin or racked by failure or racked by disappointment, come to me and I will give you rest. Friend, hear this message. We are born again according to the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God. Let us not think for a moment that it is because we are wise, because we are smart, or because we have earned somehow this, this great gift. <laughs> we have not. But there are, there are other aspects of that. I won't, won't belabor them long, but notice that verse 5, not only are we born again by mercy, but we are guarded through faith. You don't have to worry about whether or not your faith uh, is going to see you through or that your salvation is going to last or that your salvation is somehow temporary or that your salvation is based rather upon you the, the question is always are you a believer do you trust in Christ and if so then you have the power of God according to verse 5 that guards your inheritance how do I know that I'm going to heaven I'm not going on the basis of the work of Greg. I'm going on the basis of the work of Christ. It's Christ's work, not Greg's work, that merits heaven. And my faith in Christ is guarded by Christ. Not merely dependent upon me, but dependent ultimately upon Christ. So he not only merits the salvation that he gives to me, he guards that salvation that he gives to me. To me and likewise to you by God's power are being guarded through faith thanks be to God he continues verse 8 we are reminded to love him verse 8 again to believe in him verse 8 again to rejoice 
in him, to rejoice with joy. There's a double use of the word joy. There ought to be in our heart and lives this morning this great joy that gives lift to our lives so that we may continue to love him and believe him and to trust him, to care that he loves us and to go and do likewise. Verse 9, he reminds us that as a result of that, we obtain the salvation of our souls. This is good news. This is the rock-solid foundation of our lives. The one thing that you need to get clarity on this morning is whether or not you are in Christ, whether or not you have the assurance of the salvation of your soul. You may be the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. It doesn't matter what you do. What matters is, do you have a destiny beyond this life? Is there a security in God for you, made possible by the work of Christ and your faith in that work? This salvation is our great treasure. This salvation is our great foundation. It's the rock upon which we stand. It's the rock upon which we build our hope. It's the rock upon which the Savior through Peter in this passage, is reminding us this is the old, old story that you need to make sure is secure in your own life. And he reminds us how old it is in verse 10 and following, because he says that it's been prophesied about for centuries. This is not new. This is not novel. You may have heard me say before, but as, as I encourage young preachers, I tell them the great challenge that you're going to face is that you think you're going to discover some sort of holy secret. I've noticed this about people who are not preachers, too. Somebody to write a book about some spiritual key that unlocks the secrets. And we all begin to break out in hives thinking, whoa, that's what I need. Because the regular religion, the regular Christianity, that's kind of become stale and boring. So we need to hear about something that Adam buried in a rock or Moses hid under the water or somebody that's secured some papyrus or some tablet or some coin or some amulet or something and on it is the key to unlocking the great secrets of God. <laughs> Friend, every bit of that is just a money grab. It's just a money grab. Don't be so foolish. The Bible is clear that the Bible is the authority. And the fact that you're bored with the Bible doesn't in any way suggest there's a problem with the Bible. The fact that the Bible is not the treasure for your heart. <laughs> Don't trust me. I mean, look what Peter says. 
regarding these prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours. They searched and inquired carefully. They inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ and then was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. So you have these prophets, five, six, seven, eight hundred, a thousand years before Christ, and they have been moved of the Spirit to see the future, and they are writing these things down. So these great prophecies that are recorded in the Old Testament are there because these men are being moved, but they're giving they're given snapshots, glimpses. They're given pieces of the puzzle. They are not given the entire puzzle. As God's people on this side of the cross, we have the entire puzzle. But a thousand years before Christ, they did not have. And they are searching and searching and searching. And they're inquiring. And they're asking God, help me to understand. Help me to discern correctly. So there is this picture that Peter is describing in 1 Peter 1 of these prophets who are digging in this old, 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 old story, and they are trying to, to unveil, to reveal these new pictures, and it is, it is so profound, it is so, it is so old, so, so historic. Notice that he, how he concludes that phrase, there at the end of verse 12, he said that they were sent, they were by, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Can you imagine? Angels, angels are really old, really old. And yet angels are not permitted to see what God is revealing even then, a thousand years before Christ, 800 years before Christ, 700 years before Christ, revealing to those prophets who wrote down these things that we call Old Testament until then. So how old is an angel? I don't know. Neither does anybody else. Don't buy books that tell you how old the angels are. But for millennia, these angels long to look. They long to know the story. They long to see the truth of God, and they don't see it because God has kept it hidden until he now, by the Holy Spirit, is revealing it to these prophets so that they could reveal it to me, to you, so that the Bible would become the great treasure of your life. Stop looking for some hidden secret as if God is ducking and dodging you that God wants to keep these things from you in fact friend this is all of the work you need for the rest of your life there's plenty here So we need something old. We need to get back to basics. We need to get back to fundamentals. We need to perhaps go back to training camp and figure out who we're supposed to block. We're supposed to get back to the basics of living our lives and what it means to be a follower of Christ. That old, old story needs to be characteristic of our lives today. If you don't do anything else, in the new year, but get back to that which is old. That'll be a fine day's work. Bless you in that, friend. And anything I can do or our church can do to help you in that, please let me know. But he doesn't end there. It's a long section. So in verse 13, 
he transitions and he talks about things that you are to build on that foundation. That is to say, something new, something old through verse 12. Now, something new, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. I mean, how long does that take? Is, how, how big of a job is that? Will that last you all of the new year? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it will. Pretty sure it will. Because oftentimes the mind is, is focused until it's not. And some of us have the focus of a two-year-old. And I mean that with no perjury to two-year-olds. But we just struggle with focus. Okay, that's, that's not a crime. That doesn't make you a bad person, evil person. It just means we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We, we can't keep focused on anything. We can't read for long. We can't think for long. We're, we're easily distracted. We can't keep our thoughts together, so forth. But notice what he says, in light of who God is, in light of who you are in relation to God, in light of the work of Christ in your life, your affection for Christ, your devotion to Christ, your believing in Christ, in light of all of that, prepare your minds for action. Dig in. Dig down. Prepare your minds for action. I'll tell you what we need to be doing in the new year. We need to be growing. We need to be going deeper. We need to be getting wider. We need to be getting taller. We need to, we need to move on, move along. I'll say more about that momentarily. But there's where he begins. Prepare your mind for action. He concludes there in verse 13. Set your hope on grace. It's, it's dependent upon God. It's ultimately his grace. How much grace does God have? Plenty. Well, I might run out. No, you won't. He might run out. No, he won't. The Bible tells us his mercies are new every day. Turns out God's got a reservoir that you can't even imagine. It's deep enough, not only for you and all the rest of the billions of people on planet Earth, it's deep enough for our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren are not yet even born. It turns out that God has enough mercy for everybody to go about the business that God has for them. We are to set our hope on grace. Our hope is in the grace of God and the kindness of God. If God's not going with us, let's don't go. If God's not for us, we've got no hope. But if God is for us, and he is, then set your hope on the fact that you're not going alone, friend. You're not going into the new year. You're not facing the challenges of the new year. You're not facing the enemies of the new year alone. You've never been alone. I don't know what God's up to. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of COVID. I remember when the early report was, this is just going to be a temporary thing. Well, it's growing old right now. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm tired of it. Okay, enough whining. How long is God going to use Coven in our lives? I don't know. That's his business, not mine. 
What's he going to use after COVID? I don't know, but there'll be something. Because God's always poking. Always. Or I like to do this. This is God's favorite activity in my life. Just thumps my ear. Which hurts, by the way. Don't you, any of you come up behind me and do that because I really don't like it. I don't like it when you do it and I don't like it when God does it. But God constantly does that. And he does that because he wants me to understand that my life is not tied up here. That this is not home. It's where I stay temporarily. It's where I abide temporarily. But soon and very soon, we will all fly away. And we'll fly away to something that's permanent, to a city whose maker and builder is God, eternal in the heavens, not made with hands. This building, I think about it all the time. It's nothing but concrete and steel. Concrete and steel. If there's a tornado, this is the room you want to be in. I can't imagine any room in our community that's built more strategically for a tornado than this one. This is a glorified bunker. But I promise you, friend, that if the right tornado comes along, this bunker and your bunker made by man is no match. I'm not saying don't have a bunker. I got a bunker. <laughs> you got a bunker. Come on in. Got lots of chairs. But I'm telling you, God's stronger than anything man can do. And he's stronger than any enemy that any of us can imagine. The ones we can see, the ones we can't. And God is doing business in the cosmos, even now. We need to set our hope on grace. We need to set our hope on the power of God and the strength of God and the hope of God. Our help comes from the Lord. Our help comes from God alone. Set our hope on grace. He continues, it's just a rapid fire. Verse 14, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be, don't be like you used to be. Since, since you've been born again, since, since you've experienced his mercy, experienced his grace, since you've done all these things, prepare your mind for action, set your hope on grace, and Turn away from that junk. All right, it's the first of the new year. There's some stuff that needs to go. Figure it out and get rid of it. Don't be conformed to your former passions. You don't have to live with that. You don't have to, 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 to wallow in that. You don't. Don't be conformed. Instead, verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, their spiritual exile. Conduct yourselves with fear 
means the mind, right? You're not afraid in the, my hands are not afraid, my ears are not afraid, my feet are not afraid, but my mind can be afraid. So that's a battleground of the mind. Fear, we like to say fear grows out of the heart, but we understand it's the mind. The mind can be afraid of anything from roaches to mice to armadillos. Armadillos have zero teeth. But it's amazing to me the people that are afraid of armadillos. They are not frightful. They're from Texas. They're not frightful. You can trust me on this. You don't have to be afraid of anything, ultimately. We love to talk about Daniel and the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. These men apparently are so courageous, they're not afraid. David stands before Goliath and says, I'm going to cut your head off. That's not the words of fear. Well, why aren't we like that? I'll tell you why, friend, because they think differently than we do. Their minds are prepared for action. They got up trusting. They got up believing. They got up hoping. They got up contending for the faith. They were different than the people around them, and they are different for the most part from us. But we don't have to allow them to be the only examples. We ourselves can be that. He says in verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. That is your mind. Train your mind to trust, to hope in God. And he concludes here in verse 22, saying, love one another. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart. We are to put on something new, which is perhaps not so much new in general, but maybe new to us. Maybe, maybe the challenge of the new year for us is that we would love differently. Chapter 2, verse 1, he has another verb, put away. Put away. There's some, some things in our life that need to be gotten rid of, that we, need to be, that we need to deal with. We need to kick out the door and don't invite them back. Put away. And then the thing that really strikes me there in chapter 2, verse 2, is that we would long for the sincere or pure milk of the word. I use the analogy of a baby. You know, I, I always think that uh, childbirth's quite a fascinating thing. Uh, a child prior to birth lives in a liquid environment in the womb. And immediately at birth lives in a atmospheric environment and the very liquid environment that he just left is now a threat and will kill him you can't put a breathing child back in liquid but in a moment that child transitions from one environment to another that is Entirely miraculous. You say, oh, no, it happens all the time. You know, it's called science. 
Yeah, isn't it? Still a miracle. Still amazing. But he says here, this child longs for milk. You know how much milk babies are consuming prior to birth? Zero. And then when they get here, they're going to let you know about it. And the only thing you can do for a crying baby who's hungry is what? Feed it. Yeah, so while he needs to, you know, get on a schedule. Good luck with that. Call me when you get there. I don't want to have to endure it. He may need to get on a schedule. We're not debating that. But I'm telling you, he's earnest for milk. I mean, he is earnest. He is ready to eat. I think about taste buds. You know what a baby thinks about taste buds prior to born, to being born? Neither do I. But I'm pretty sure they're not having a conversation about, ooh, that's tasty. But after they're born, they're like all the rest of us. They become picky little animals, euphemistically. Picky, picky, picky. And the older we get, the pickier we get. And it's all about taste. It's all about texture. It's all about what we like. It doesn't have to be good for us. In fact, it's usually bad for us. And the worse it is, the better it tastes, etc. The Bible says, as newborn infants long for sincere, pure milk, we are to long for God. We are to long for salvation, to know salvation, to understand salvation, to put on something new. You may be bored with what it means to be a Christian, and many are. I, I'm, I'm always amazed at that, but, but many are. They're bored with their Christianity. I can tell you, you can, you can always spot them, right? They have little regard for, for the things of God. They have little regard for the Bible, little regard for church, little regard for prayer, little regard for spiritual markers in their lives, little regard for repentance, well, you know, you, you ought not to do that. Well, that's just me. Well, you know, I was born that way. I got red hair, so I got an excuse for this. Or, you know, my dad was that way, so I, that's just the way I was raised. Yeah, but did anybody ever tell you you were raised poorly? Anybody ever tell you that that's not, that's not consistent with what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ? Well, you're just going to have to love me the way I am. Well, that's not the point here, is it, friend? The question here is not whether or not I love you. In fact, because I love you, I'm about to jack your jaws in Jesus' name. Because I love you, I'm going to call you out. Because I love you, I'm going to say, what's up with the lack of spiritual longing in your life? What's up with the dullness in your life? What's up with the, with the mediocrity of your Christian pilgrimage? What's up? You become lazy with God. I think about church. During COVID, a lot of folks have many times, dare we say most times, been very careful about church. Well, at some point, that's got to end, doesn't it? What's your plan? You got a plan? Well, I don't have a plan. I'm just kind of just watching. 
waiting. Okay, okay. Can I encourage you, friend? Get a plan. Get a plan. Get a plan for your spiritual maturity. Long for the things of God. Long for these things because these are the things that ought to satisfy you. Church ought to be a part of that. But there are many other things. I'm uh, going to have a book recommendation here for you. It's a brand new book written by a guy named Daryl Dash. Daryl Dash. Some of you will text me later because you can't spell Daryl. I don't care how you spell it. Just try it. It'll, it'll come up. Daryl Dash. But he's got a book called Eight Habits for Growth. It's not new. This is old, old, but it's, it's, it's good. It's right. It's true. So it's a new book. So these fledgling authors need your support. Eight Habits for Growth. And here, here are his eight habits that, that Daryl Dash advocates. How to become more like Christ. How to long for Christ more. Here, here's, here's his eight things. Number one, make time. Make time. I could talk for hours about that. You know, friend, so, so many of us have no margin in our lives. We just have no margin. We're chasing our tails, and we call it our children or our grandchildren. Or we're chasing the dollar. Or we're chasing our leisure time. Or we're chasing our obligations around. And we just, we just have no margin whatsoever. We go to bed tired, we get up tired, we live our lives worn out, emotionally, physically, and yes, spiritually. We just have no time. Well, the reality is we all have time. We all are here, we've all made time, even for this, thanks be to God, good for you, way to go, but we need to make time. He said, I don't have five minutes. Well, first of all, that's a lie, right? Everybody's got five minutes. Everybody. Five minutes. Just pull aside. Say, well, I don't have time to read through the Bible in 2022. Okay. Then I'll tell you what. Why don't you just read a verse a day? That's 365 of them. It takes about five minutes to read and to think for two of those three minutes. I don't care how slow a reader you are, you can read one verse. You say, well, that's not much. You know, I won't get a merit badge. The church is advocating this or that, whatever. Well, okay. But you got to make time, friend. And if you're, gonna, you're not going to give us 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes, you're not going to give your life that to build, just do something. You want to get in shape? Why don't you fall down and do yourself five push-ups? So, well, that's not going to get into shape. Yeah, but it's a good start. And your problem right now is zero effort never changes anything. But if you'll just get started with anything, five minutes, make time. He continues, you need rest, a lot to say there, read or listen to the Bible. Do you know every Bible app on your smartphone comes with an audio component. Every Bible app I've ever seen has an audio component. In fact, they'll go out of business if they don't have an audio component because people don't want to read. They want to drive and listen. So every audio, every uh, Bible app has an audio. Say, well, I don't like listening to the Bible. The truth is I don't either. I don't either. So I make time because I want to read, but there is no category called I will not read or listen. 
That category does not exist. Pursue worship and community in a church. You're here. Praise God for that. Care for your body. Simplify your spiritual life and build a rule of life. I don't own this book, but I know Daryl Dash and I like him, so I'm going to buy this book. But that's the reason I'm buying the book. Build a rule for your life. I don't know what that means, but I'm going to find out what that means. I think I know what that means. But there's eight habits for growth. Those are basic. Those are old as the hills, but the problem is not that there's going to be some great panacea answer for us. The problem is that we won't do the old, old things. There's another uh, article that has blessed me. I made note of it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Don Whitney teaches at Southern Seminary. He's a professor there and uh, a longtime friend, Don Whitney, wrote an article, 10 Questions for the New Year. I won't read all 10 of these questions, but there are three of them that stand out. Uh, the, the ones that I won't read are things like, uh, what's your most important financial goal and what is the most important step toward it? I figure you can figure that out on your own. You don't need any help from me. But here's, here's the three questions out of his 10 that I want to glean for your help this morning. What's the most important decision you need to make? What's the most important decision you need to make? What's the big rock that you need to move? You need to figure out what that is. I would dare say that among the big rocks in your life are to get yourself in spiritual shape. Spiritual shape. To do exactly what 1 Peter chapter 1 tells you to do. To be holy because I am holy. Follow God. Love God. Love one another. The most important decision you need to make. It may be that you're already in spiritual shape. Praise God. So there's some other decision you need to make, but it could be that. The second question that I would pull out is this one. How can you simplify your life? Stop chasing your tail. Stop doing that. Build some margin in your life. You need some downtime, not downtime to catch up on Netflix. You need downtime to catch up on God. How can you simplify your life? Cut out some of this stuff. Outside my window, the office window, are rose bushes. Rose bushes. I'm not a fan, but Susan likes roses. Rose bushes. By the way, she, that, that's another story. Okay, but so we plant roses. I like roses enough to, you know, say they're beautiful, they look good and all that, but they, they have thorns, so I'm not a fan. But they keep growing. And even these little knockout rose bushes that are outside the office door, they keep growing. And I'm on a mission to cut stuff that grows. I cannot stand shrubs that are bigger than your garage. I can't stand them. Don't like them. And I don't like rose bushes that ate your car. But they're, they exist right here in our community. And those out there, they want to be that size. But they have to go through me to get there. So I go out there periodically, three or four times a year, and I cut them. I cut them. Now, you know what happens to knockout roses when you cut them? They bloom again. 
He said, my roses have quit blooming. Cut them. Cut them. You know what happens when you cut something, when you reduce something, when you cut it back, prune it back? You know what happens? It puts on new growth. That's true of roses, and that's true of humans. If you would simplify your life and decide what needs to grow, to go away, cut some of that junk out of your life, you'll begin to grow. You'll begin to flower again in some areas because now you've created some simplicity to your life. You are not running around like a gerbil on a wheel. Stop doing that. There is one more question. And this is the question that always challenges me. And that is, what is one step you can take to enrich your family's spiritual legacy? Your family's spiritual legacy. Many of you in this room and many perhaps watching via live stream have raised your children. And the hay is in the barn, so to speak, for the most part. But maybe you have influence with grandchildren, or maybe you will one day. That's kind of our situation. We, we influence our family from a distance because none of them live here. And we influence our grandchildren from a distance, obviously. But periodically, they come to visit. And the question begs asking, what do they see? What do they take note of? Our oldest grandson is 13 today. We took him and his one year younger cousin, our granddaughter, oldest granddaughter, on a little tour, vacation tour this past summer. We spent five days with him, Susan and I did, just us, the four of us. And that's the longest protracted experience we had with them in their lives, alone. But what I noted about my grandson, and my granddaughter for that matter, but particularly my grandson, who's a little more chatty, is that he notices everything we do. He could mimic my cough. He could mimic my facial expressions. He lives in Chicago. I see him twice a year. But it didn't, didn't take long that I had made a mark on him. And I realized that he's watching and listening and paying attention to stuff that I just soon he skipped. But he didn't and he doesn't. And none of it was dangerous or problematic, just at times, a nuisance to be reminded that you have idiosyncratic things that people pick up on. And all of you could do the same thing, but you're, you know, not willing to go that far with me yet because you don't know if you can trust me. But it's okay. But you're leaving a legacy, friend, whether you want to or not. People are watching. You say, well, I want people to know that I know the Bible. Well, that's good. I hope you do know the Bible. But I want you to note that that's not what this passage says you are to emphasize. Prepare your minds for action. 
and your action are not necessarily more Bible study, though it could include more Bible study. And may, I, I do want to suggest that if you have a longing for the pure, sincere milk of the Word, you will pursue more Bible study. But if all that does is just make your head get bigger with Bible, and you know more Bible, and know more Bible, and know more Bible, and all that does is just make you more arrogant, more cocky, more self-reliant, more self-righteous, more condescending to other people, then please repent. That's not what he's saying. Instead, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, put away all malice, put away all deceit, put away all hypocrisy, put away all envy, put away all slander. Those five things, none of those things are about knowledge. You know what you need to do in your life? You need to prepare your mind for action to be more loving, less malicious, less deceitful, less hypocritical, less envious, and less slanderous. You should pay more attention to your mouth. What you say, how you say it, to whom you say it. You should pay more attention to your words. You should pay more attention to your life. You say you believe X, but then you go and do Y. That's called hypocrisy. Turns out your children, your grandchildren are paying attention to your hypocrisy. So put away your hypocrisy. Prepare your minds for action. You say, well, I just have a real problem with hypocrisy. I just find it so easy to be a hypocrite. (laughs) Okay. What you going to do about that? It's a new year. I want to encourage you to do exactly what the Bible tells you to do. Get back to basics. Remember that you were saved by the mercy of God and you live by the grace of God. And that grace intends to make you holy and righteous. That grace intends to grow you up according to the word of God to pursue salvation in a new and fresh way. So I hope that you will do that. I hope that you you will know that you arrived when you're no longer full of malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander, that in fact, you are mature. You are growing up in Christ. You have blessed Christ with the way you live your life. What kind of legacy do you intend to leave for your family? If it's a Christian one, friend, we all need to go back to basics, dig down, get busy. And in order to do that, we got to make some changes we got to get busy on those changes. Can I just tell you, lastly, the church is here to help with that, but ultimately, the battle is not won in these halls. The battle is not won sitting in those chairs, listening to me week after week after week. The battle is won in the privacy of your own life. You come here to gain encouragement in that, But ultimately, the battle is won with you in the stillness of your own life, in the stillness of your own home, in the stillness of your own heart, alone with God. What needs to happen in the new year for you? I don't know. But you need to find some margin and you need to simplify so that you can get your body and soul and mind into this book so that you can see the beauty and the glory of Christ And the wonder of a God who loves you so much that he wants you to stop doing things that are harmful to you or harmful to your children, harmful to your grandchildren, 
or to your friends or your neighbors or harmful ultimately to the gospel. Let us be faithful to recommit ourselves to something old and something new. Pray with me. God, thank you for your grace here this morning. Help us to give glory to you in our hearts, to magnify you, to make much of you, to hope in you even now. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you've given us your word and that your word is right and good and true and that that word is full of life. Lord, maybe it's said of us that we pursue you earnestly like a baby pursues milk. Let us likewise pursue God and his word. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.